celebrate the recent publication of the Oxford Companion to Spears and Cocktails, we partnered with some amazing brands to explore a few of our most interesting findings from the research, writing, and editing of the book. This week's episode is in partnership with Hendrix Gin. The book is now available at bookstores around the world. Cheers. Welcome to another edition of Life Behind Bars. I'm Noah Rothbaum, the Daily Beast half-full editor. Joining me, as always, is my colleague and co-host, David Weinrich. How are you, Dave? Doing well. Yourself? I am very well. Uh, looking forward to this episode. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, it, it's all about gin, which is... Uh, near and dear say, to my heart. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I was going to say, I think you've had this. I think you've had gin once before. I'm I've not had sure. gin once before. And I think you Maybe liked twice. it. It seemed to agree with you. What is this strange substance? I say to myself, where can I get more of it? <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to talk about cocktails and not talk about the history of gin. And, and, and also, you know, gin finds its way into many conversations. It's hard to talk about politics and, you know, the history <laughs> of trading and taxation yeah. and, you know, oh my God. geography, and, you know, without, you know, talking about gin. So. Uh, I mean, gin is, uh, you know, it's, it kind of stands for the whole world of distilled spirits these days, uh, you know, often enough. But uh, it's, uh, it was kind of a crooked path it took to get there, that's for sure. We often think about gin as kind of a modern idea, right? And, and you know, through the lens of mm-hmm. Ian Fleming and his character James Bond or through you know, uh, London bar culture, but it's, it's got a wild history that I, I don't think people really understand. And, and obviously we get into a lot of it in the Oxford Companion. Yeah, we've got those. numerous entries on aspects of it, but I mean, including like uh, Geneva, which people say is Dutch gin. It's really not. It's its own spirit. Uh, it gave the inspiration for the English to make gin, but the English have always done things their own way. So they didn't make gin the same way the Dutch made gin. You know, the Dutch made it basically like like they were making whiskey. They used pot stills, which give you thick, rich spirits, uh, and and distilled very carefully using only the highest quality ingredients and very little botanical flavoring, just just a hint. It was pretty subtle. England, uh, they didn't, the distillers who wanted to make gin, they didn't have access to those those really high quality grains, they had to use what other people didn't want to use. So uh, they focused much more on the flavoring. And as soon as they had the technology to make new, truly neutral spirit, to make spirit that didn't have any native flavor of its own, uh, they moved immediately to that in the, in the 1820s, 1830s. Uh, and then, then, you know, they're just making clean neutral spirit and then using the botanicals to tell the story rather than the flavor of the grain so they're really kind of two different spirits so uh, gin's both very old and it's also kind of modern what i really love about it is also that you know wherever it's made you know that that culture that bar culture and also the larger culture of seems to really put their stamp on gin and and we have our, our friend sebastian Dear Beaumont, the manager of brand advocacy for William Grant, coming on a little bit later in this episode to sort of talk about the modern era of gin, yeah, where we definitely see that it's still happening around the world, where oh, yeah. 
different countries, you know, take gin and really make it their own and in well, the way that they make it, the way that they serve it, all the customs, the rituals. You know, I mean, you could, you could kind of look at it that the English granted this, this spirit freedom, you know, right. in the Dutch, it was, it had, when the, in the Dutch style, it was tied very closely to the quality of the grain that went into it. And to the point where uh, they were buying all their grain from Eastern Europe and it was uh, being harvested in the fall and mounted high into like long kind of uh, pyramid like shaped piles on, on barges where it would ride out the winter and uncovered. And it would, that grain would sprout in the spring and then they would sail these barges down the river and it looked like floating gardens, you know, <laughs> and then they'd haul those uh, around uh, through the Baltic to, to Holland where they'd scrape the, uh, the, 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 these tall growing plants off the, uh, that, that top layer of growth off of the grain. And then they had all this very high quality grain underneath, yeah. which uh, had been protected. But, but you can imagine these like floating gardens coming in. It's really, it was a strong connection to the grain. In England, you know, they, they had to invent neutral spirit basically uh, or, or perfect it. And that meant that all the flavor because it's coming from botanicals, you can use all kinds of different things. Yeah, uh, You're not tied to any one thing. Juniper, sure, but they were already experimenting with citrus and other spices, a little of this, a little angelica, a little licorice root. Uh, and that's very flexible because uh, wherever, wherever you can get neutral spirit, you can make gin using yeah. your local botanicals, the things that people really associate with with that terroir that place so it's very cool it's like it, it's a local spirit and it's also kind of international like that i think this is one of these cases where cocktails and spirits make kind of tax law and 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 import export you know uh sanctions like incredibly fascinating where normally yeah, yeah. They would probably put most people to sleep reading those types of rules, but you like you know you see in England right and all over the UK that the that the king and and parliament use kind of gin and gin production to also help with sales of local domestic you know grain production right so mm -hmm. at, you know to to bolster sales they raise tariffs on foreign you know grain coming in. And then they also essentially make it anybody can make distill and make gin at home, which is obviously, you know, wildly successful because people start buying a lot of domestic grain. But the other problem is that you also get like a river of gin being produced in, you know, every basement yeah. and every, you know, yard, you know, all over the, you know, England. And, and there's it's suddenly a wash. In, in very high proof and, you know, gin. Yeah, so, so you know, it's funny. So, so they go from like, all right, everybody has to make this to, okay, nobody can make this. Right. Uh, and, and because the, you know, the, the, the backlash is, and, and this lasted for a really long time, was that only a few people in the UK were allowed to ferment and distill that. So, you know, to distill from scratch, to make spirit yeah. uh, for... Everybody else uh, had to uh, buy their spirit from these few people, and anybody could buy the spirit and uh, and redistill it. But they had to pay all the taxes when they bought it. So the government wanted to make sure they got every penny of tax. 
I think that was the real problem with with everybody distilling in their basement is the government couldn't collect taxes on it. Right. So they made it that there was this this thing called grain distillers, and there were only about ten in the whole United Kingdom. A few of them in Scotland, a few of them in London, and you know maybe one or two others. And 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 uh, that was like from the seventeen forties up until the 1860s or 70s it went like that it was crazy and i would argue that alcohol hard alcohol sort of reputation takes a real hit from the gin craze where it's oh yeah i mean i i've you know it it it, it really kind of besmirches its reputation and and i don't know if it ever really shook it off you know because you you know you was it had terrible pr you know there was you know that famous painting right or it's it's an engraving gin lane right showing all yeah, types yeah, yeah. of horrible behavior you know supposedly caused by excessive gin making and gin drinking and i you know that's sort of hard to shake off i mean but at the same time england was trying to encourage its rum industry you know in the caribbean right. and so it was it's always it always gets really complicated you know it's like we don't want this kind of alcohol we do want our rum industry which was far more evil in some ways you know yeah. because it was based on enslaved labor uh and 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 it was just uh, you know it was it, it was it was horribly cruel uh, but at the same time people were making huge amounts of money from that so we want we want that we don't want uh people distilling at home we do want them distilling in the caribbean you know and, and it just goes on and on and it gets really really intricate well, and that's where it's like the alcohol is tied to like much bigger issues where, you know, looking back, sometimes we think it's all about changing, you know, tastes or the way that people, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, certain cocktails come in and out or way. And, and a lot of times it's I think it's kind of the reverse where it's like, you know, you know, a king or government or, you know, the IRS is saying you know, don't use X, use Y, and then that becomes scarce and people's drinking habits have to change. Not because it's not because they want to or not because they don't like drinking, you know, this kind of cocktail and they switch to another cocktail. It's it's more like it's a reflection of what's available and not, not available. And that's decisions often made for them. And And it's funny because those kind of rule changes often, you know, through history are edited out or forgotten about forgotten and, and, often yeah right and you jump to the conclusion oh like people you know didn't like drinking gin anymore that's why they moved to rum it's like not well, exactly a little more complicated <laughs> right? exactly that. yeah that was why when when they got like modern distillation in the 18 1820s 1830s where you could make you know like like we said where you could make neutral spirit uh, people really jumped on that because it gave them freedom from their you know from having to to use like this grain or that grain yeah. uh and and could just like make something that uh was a blank canvas and that was, was like thank god you know now we can run our business and you really see it like you know i think kind of gin comes into its own like with cocktail culture right i mean that's mm-hmm. where it becomes one of the bedrock spirits of of cocktail culture that bartenders you know in you know really you know use to create some of the most iconic drinks that we oh, know absolutely. and love today. And it's, it's, I mean, I think that's, you know, you know, we'll get into this a little bit later with Seb, but like 
part of the reason why we've seen a kind of rebirth of, of gene recently is because it was, it was so widely used, you know, in, in many key points in cocktail history, like to, I mean, partly in the, in the recent cocktail Renaissance, it was gin was almost weaponized to use against vodka. You know, (laughs) it was like, okay, everybody was drinking vodka in the nineties. You know, all the popular drinks, you think back on the apple martini and the long, I mean, they were all vodka drinks, vodka drinks, vodka drinks. And there's, you know, the people who were interested in like a, a wider and, and more historical definition of the cocktail, that was their secret handshake and their, yeah. their, their shield and, and their sword going into battle was gin. You know, it's like <laughs> gin martini, not vodka martini. Right. Gin Collins, not vodka Collins. Uh, you know, make, make mine with gin. And, uh, and it was, it's really, it really was, uh, it was a moment, you know, and, and, and yeah, they had a, a long tradition they could draw, draw on with all kinds of uh, iconic people drinking gin yeah. and iconic drinks and so on. So I'm a little scared to say this because I'm not sure if you'll agree with me or not, but I'm just going to say it. My understanding of gin, I, I'm, I'm, I'm shielding myself, um, <laughs> is that, uh, how do I hedge my bet here? That, that basically, all right, I'm just going to say it, that basically it's the first flavored vodka, right? Because <laughs> you're taking neutral grain spirit, which is essentially vodka right Mm -hmm. and you're flavoring it but instead of flavoring it as we commonly do today with donuts or chili peppers (laughs) or grapefruit salmon smokes whatever you know whatever crazy vodka is on the shelf today that you know it's essentially it's the first flavored vodka because we're flavoring it with you know obviously juniper but also you know the botanicals could be whatever i mean orris root or you know yeah a lot of citrus citrus peels right uh, i mean and, and we've seen you know you know, some brands use three or four botanicals, some use 30 botanicals, right? So like, right. And, and then everything in between. So, but I mean, really, I mean, I always sort of see it as the first flavored vodka, which I know a lot of gin people don't even like to be associated with that some other. People, some people, you know, I remember Audrey Saunders talking up the benefits of juniper flavored vodka. So, <laughs> well, sometimes you have to. I mean, that that yeah, was to get people exactly, to try exactly. it. It was, you know. But all right, so so you didn't yell. I'm I'm glad about that. Um, yeah, no, but, no, no. <laughs> we'll bring on our our friend uh, Sebastian from uh, William Grant in a minute. Welcome, Seb. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure being here. Dave and I have both had uh, the pleasure of. Uh, drinking at least one gin cocktail with you over the years, if not. <laughs> yes, I would say that. A few martinis. And a hot gin punch, too, for days. Oh, yeah. yeah. Hot gin punch, uh, martinis, all types of drinks. It seemed for a while that every event was a gin event, you know, you know, for the last 15 years or so. We've done so many of those, uh, and, and, and you guys were, were part of the last big one we did. Uh, before the pandemic so yeah so many great memories uh, i know traveling all over the place testing our favorite bartenders that was uh amazing that was epic when i think about you know the rebirth of the cocktail so much of it is tied to gin right i mean it, it seemed for a while the best bars in new york or la or chicago like 
Jin was dominating the menu for, for years. You know, why do you think that its rebirth was so popular and, and that it became such a, you know, kind of uh, ubiquitous ingredient in, in craft cocktail bars? As you know, gin is, is such a predominant, you know, ingredient in, in so many classics, you know, and in, in so many cocktail books, you know, in, when you come down to cocktails for new creation, you know, it's, it's something which is juniper driven. Uh, so, you know, it has a bit of a, a kick with some different botanicals. So it can be florals, it can be citrusy. I mean, it offers so many different options and, and flavors to play with for mixologists that I think gin, you know, being a, like what we call a white spirit. So very flexible when you come down to, you mm-hmm. know, playing with different types of flavors, it still offer a little bit more than, than vodka, uh, which yeah. is seen as being, you know, a little bit more blend. Um, so I think that's why gin really kicked off, you know, and, and he just enjoyed the reverse of cocktails in general as well, too. Um, I think he was a combination of both. You know, gin has this reputation of being this intense, pungent, like strongly flavored spirit when, yes, there is strong flavor in there, but it, it, gin blends so nicely and, and that it, it's perfectly happy tucking that flavor in. Uh, into the mix rather than than you know just completely leading it like if you if you make something with a say a smoky single malt scotch or a mezcal or some of these very very thickly flavored spirits gin is actually very polite exactly and and he became even more polite Dave to, to your point with the introduction of like different style of gin so if you look at the old school gins you know they were very much juniper driven uh, some of them quite pregnant or you know citrusy driven. Uh, citrus driven and now i mean hendrix for example in 1999 was a great introduction to the uh, kind of whole different world with something a little bit more subtle uh something focusing on different ingredients a bit more floral you know uh introduction of cucumber and roses as, as an infusion in the world of gin completely changed the game and taking away the classic uh, lime or lemon you know garnish for mm. a cucumber slice and suddenly you open up a whole new world in the gin category and yeah, you know, it, it, it's funny. I always think of Hendrix as being like this intensely differently flavored gin. And yet when you taste it in a blind tasting, you could taste the new botanicals and they're there, but they're very well integrated. Yeah. A lot of other new gins that uh, I think have seen the Hendrix idea and said, oh, we have to put a lot of this stuff in there. So whenever you mix a drink with it, that's all you taste is their weird botanicals. And Hendrix just you know blends in very beautifully, and you can make a classic martini with it that's not going to be overpowered by its fun new botanicals, mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, some some of these other gins. I find I find you know uh, a little bit of uh, subtlety goes a long way in, in distilling, and uh, it's 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 nice to see that. It's a uh, you know it's an incredible difficult job when you think about it. You know, like a lot of people give a little credit to you know the. The master distiller when it comes down to the whiskey industry but you have to think that they have the power of, of blending and you know after maturation they can correct you know some of the imperfections through through the blending process but when it comes down to gin you know you there's no way to hide you know it's your it's your raw product and uh, it is what it is when you come off the come off the steel and i think leslie gracie the master distiller of hendrix did a, a tremendous job uh creating hendrix because like you say she was able to mix mm-hmm. Those 11 botanicals and with the addition of cucumber and roses in, in complete harmony. And she was actually rewarded for this quite recently. She won a, a lifetime achievement uh, for her career. And I'm, I'm so super happy for Leslie because she's also a, 
a great individual. She's such a lovely lady. It's a master class in in integrating botanicals, I think, and uh, and that's, that's something that I think more people could take away. Not the fact that you should use new botanicals in gin, but that if you do use them, they should be very well integrated. I mean, 1999 seems like another lifetime ago, and and, right. and it's just sort of where all cocktails were at the time, where the mm-hmm. gin category was. I mean, it was fairly sleepy. I mean, you had a few new introductions like in the 90s that were popular, but like there weren't that many gins. I remember doing, you know, different, you know, gin makers would come through New York in the early 2000s. We'd do like a blind tasting and basically you could taste almost every gin that was widely available and be like, I don't know, six, seven gins, let's say, right? And, you know, after a while, like I got very good at saying, you know, you know, this is X, this is Y, like I knew them, I could, you know, blind. And and then it just blew up. And like, if you were going to do every gin available today, it would be, oh, it'd be dozens. weeks of work. <laughs> right? I mean, like, it, and a lot of them, I'm not sure I would even know were gin at this point. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's, it's amazing yeah. the innovation and all of the creativity. And it's, it's become like a very hot category, you know, um, which I ain't back in 99, I would not have believed it, I think. I mean, the first time I think I had Hendrix was, of all places, at Whiskey Fest, <laughs> which <laughs> was at the William Grant booth. It will, you know, and I was, you know, tasting all the like, you know, the whiskeys, you know, the Glenfiddichs, the Belvenies, and um, Ian Miller, who had worked at the company for a long time, was like, "Have you had our gin?" And I was like, "What? Like, no, <laughs> like, what gin?" Yeah, and this was like in the early 2000s. And it was kind of interesting because a Whiskey Fest itself was a lot smaller than and a lot more manageable, but it seemed even at the time like very almost like a punk move to like pour innovative gin in the middle of whiskey fest, yeah. you know, which was all about like kilts and bagpipes and like tradition and history. And I was like, come over here. We, we've got this other thing. Like you should really try it. It is kind of funny though, that for a long time, most of English gin was based on alcohol distilled in Scotland. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And the Scottish family uh, stand, you know, proud and, and, created something yeah. very unique uh i mean even the bottle you know at the time in 1999 also that you know being innovative when it comes down to packaging you know that was a big thing and you know what, what they did with the black bottle you know the apothecary uh kind of style mm-hmm. uh that was also amazing like you know just to very annoying for bartenders though because you never never can do your stock tech properly when it comes down to hendrix you never know how much <laughs> is left in a bottle yeah it's, it's true it's true I like when you gave out very handsome scales to bars, which show yes, we did, which they <laughs> solve the problem. And I always, uh, I always coveted the um, pickle, like you had very beautiful pickle, like kind of uh, jars that, and then um, that had like a beautiful kind of Victorian pickle motif. And then the scale yeah. was a really cool thing uh, and, and innovative to embrace. Like, okay, we hear you. Like here's a thing that looks really cool for your bar to mm-hmm. show exactly how much. Here's our workaround. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think that the 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 strength behind you know the, the Hendrix actually was not only the liquid was wonderful, but the 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 whole world that they created behind the brand, uh, you know, really resonated with bartenders, you know, and consumers too, you know, after mm-hmm. because we did so many fantastic events through the years, and I, I still have. People coming to our events and say, oh, I went to that event years ago. Yeah. I absolutely love it. You know, I'm a fan of you guys. And, and people are actually truly fan of the brand, you know, as, as much as the spirit itself. 
Uh, so it's kind of it's really wonderful. Uh, well, there was there was always a sense of fun involved. There always has been, right. and I think that's important. And and so many brands take themselves so very seriously. People don't take it that seriously, you know. No, so, uh, I mean it's when, awful, right? It's... Yeah, people want to have fun. Right. They want to be uh, broken out of their daily lives if possible. If the brand is being run in such a way, it seems like it's your duty to to drink it rather than something fun. That's not great. You want to have fun doing it, and yeah, uh, I think fun. we truly put back the, the the fun into the into the category. And I and I, you know, I'm actually proud to look back and being being part of that team and say, yeah, we we changed quite dramatically the the category and and the world of gin in general. At least in America, we we often follow the lead of the UK, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's James Bond or it's you know, all of these, you know, famous, you know, London bars that are, you know, kind of informed the way that we drink gin. And then more recently, Spain and its gin culture, you know, has sort of changed up the game. And in America, we see these giant gin glasses and kind of fanciful garnishes that people are using in Spain. Do you have a hunch of like, where we'll next see kind of next big influence for gin like from like a different country or different part of the world yeah i mean if you had to look down down under actually uh look down look down to australia uh i, I lived there for 10 years and, and managed bar over there and, and and also worked that's where i started to work for for hendrix in australia mm-hmm. and and recently i was reading an article and and they are up to having close to five uh, sorry 300 different genes local genes in australia uh, it's, wild. It, it's crazy if you look at if you compare if you think about it of scale in the population of australia which is about 25 million i think something like that yeah uh 300 different genes that's a lot per habitant. i mean yeah that's, yeah, that's nuts it's that's crazy. incredible the next thing you know there's going to be a gin for every australian oh my god <laughs> yes you know and and, and it, it, i mean obviously they love drinking drinking uh you know it's uh they're always up for a party, but yeah, I was part of that uh, renaissance of cocktails and and gin back in Australia, you know, ten years ago, and it was amazing to to watch. And now I can see that it really flourished. And this is this article was saying, if if I remember correctly, they say by 2021, one five bottles of gin consumed in Australia will be made, you know, there versus you know like one to seventy just a few years ago. That's so amazing. they're really, yeah, which is insane because they're really focusing on, on the, the local gene and, and celebrating them. They're using native ingredients like, you know, wild seeds, lemon nuttle, eucalyptus subspecies under the sun. But, you know, it's just, yeah, it's, it's incredible. Like the level of creativity they, uh, they went through to, to bring this to that level. It's been a long time coming. You know, they're rebuilding their domestic spirits industry there. They also created some of the most successful whiskey in the world, too, you know, so they're, they're, you know, they're great distillers, uh, no doubt. Now that makes me really want to go to Australia um, <laughs> more, than, more than even before. I remember being at a travel conference um, a couple of years ago and meeting with different tourism boards from around the world. And they kept, you know, it was, it was interesting. The first person sat down, I think they were from South Africa, and they were like, oh, like, you know about like our our gene trail right and i was like no like we have a gene trail and they're like oh yeah, yeah we have a gene trail and i was like and then like i mean that happened several times that day where like places all around the world were like oh you you know about our gene trail right and i was like yeah. no like you there are enough distilleries making gin. like oh yeah 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 and it was kind of amazing because it you really understand like that it's 
how many different countries, cultures mm. have made gin their own and like done their own twists and made it part. So it, it kind of, I was a little surprised to be honest, how many gin distilleries there are around the world and just how much of that is drunk, as you were saying for Australia, the, you know, in that country and it doesn't, it doesn't come here or it doesn't go to the UK. Gin is, is always the, like the, the kind of the champion local spirit because you can use local botanicals and uh, you don't need huge warehouses uh, for, for maturation and all that stuff. You can, you can do it uh, kind of on the fly. And unlike vodka, it's has deep amounts of flavor. So those local botanicals will really show through. You can, you can, it gives you something to differentiate it with. So it, it, it's, it's kind of a, been amazingly set up for this. I've, I've seen it in, obviously in Spain and, in Italy, uh, I've seen all kinds of French gins now. It's it's yeah. it, it's fascinating. Even the French are picking up on it, which is yeah, I can tell you, so. you know, for, for yeah. me, which I you know, I grew up in, in France and, and gin is definitely not our number one. I mean, if we drank it, it was in the nightclubs and because we were running out of everything else, uh yeah. kind of thing. So it was not uh maybe occasionally not, a G and T or something, but uh, yeah, I mean it's for us as a perception, it's very much an English thing. And uh, yeah, it's it's it will be always kind of like the last choice. And it's true, uh, going through bars in, in Paris recently, and, and even in South France now, it's like cocktail is truly booming, which is very nice and very nice to see. They're you know basically gin bars. So yeah, it's, yeah. Now, now it's you can see like it's, it's it's all over yeah. the menus, and I'm like, wow, we yeah. we never used to drink that stuff. I mean, we were not very big in cocktail either. You know, when you think about it, uh, 15, 20 years ago, the only bars no. find were in Paris. No, hotel bars and yeah. plus Harry's Bar. Hotel bars, <laughs> that's know? right. Yes, that's it. It was probably two bars, yeah. The Harris yeah. Field Bar and... Uh, like the Hemingway uh, Bar. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or Colin and, Field, uh, yeah. Exactly. And now, yeah, that's crazy. And now you can see, like, bar flourishing everywhere in France. Um, mm-hmm. It's really, really taking off. And I think this is why gin is becoming so big, because the cocktail culture. Yeah. It's also completely, it's becoming mainstream now almost, you know, mm-hmm. to a point. I remember looking at the scotch statistics years ago and, and France drunk a staggering amount of scotch, like, you know, per capita more than the U.S. I never expected that. So it's, I almost feel like it's it's going from scotch to gin over yeah. the last decade or so. A lot, a lot of the, the, the scotch drunk in France were blended scotch. Um I personally drank a few ball of those when I grew up and, and we, we drink it at table service, you know, in nightclubs. And unfortunately, yeah, yeah. most of the time it's mixed with, you know, Coca-Cola and, and you know, anything you can find to mix it with. It's very rare that people drink it. But yeah, it's, it's what you do. You go to, to nightclubs and you drink blended scotch with, with a mixer. <laughs> it was the same in, same in Italy when, where I spent a lot of time when I was a kid. I think it was the post-war world where scotch was what, what you know, people drank. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was the yeah. modern thing to drink was, was, was scotch. scotch because, yeah. you know, the influence of the, the, the end of World War II and, uh, and, the, and the allies and everything. And it's like, okay, this is what we're drinking now. Yeah. People think we are, uh, we're sitting in a, in a patio, you know, drinking cognac, you know, absinthe, yeah. you know, and stuff like that. And I'm like, no, <laughs> <laughs> we haven't touched absinthe for a very long time, people. <laughs> it's not, it's not a thing. <laughs> I mean, I love absinthe, but I, I can see your point. I mean, yeah, uh, I love it too. But you know, uh, after a couple, you already have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm done. Well, well Seb, uh, thank you so much for joining us. I hope next time 
it is in person over a big bowl of gin punch or gin and tonics. At this point, I take anything for uh... <laughs> Hendrix well, Martini. Exactly, <laughs> Hendrix Martini. We'll, we'll bring back the hot gin punch for you. Yes, uh, <laughs> we love it. We love it. That would that sounds great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Dave and I encourage you to drink responsibly always. 